Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. In this podcast, you'll learn actionable strategies to deal with infertility from Dr. Michael Chapman, or Prof as he's affectionately known. Prof is the co-founder of IVF Australia and is a leading Australian infertility specialist who has helped over 3,000 couples realise their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions and tips that actually work, head over to Dr Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. That first cry of a baby born after the long journey of IVF remains one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. As an obstetrician and an IVF specialist, I've had the privilege of experiencing this over many thousands of times in my long career, but I still remain moved by each baby's first cry. It signifies the end of a long journey and the beginning of a new life. This is Professor Michael Chapman, co-founder of IVF Australia and host of the IVF Journey podcast. Thanks for tuning in. To access all the previous episodes, head over to my website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. You'll also be able to find the various services that we provide at IVF Australia. So today one of my listeners has sent me an email because she's got friends where they have a problem with the male in their attempts to get pregnant and she suggested that I might talk a bit about male infertility. So we'll start from the basics and we'll have this session and maybe another session talking about management of male infertility. From the beginning, obviously a sperm is necessary to result in an embryo being formed and a baby being formed. Although some recent research uh, suggests that in mice, at least from a single cell that isn't in the testicle, you can convert it to become a sperm if you give it the right environment. So maybe in the future, we won't have any male infertility because we'll grow the sperm separately. Anyway, that's the future. So for most people now, the important thing is to have not only one sperm to fertilize the egg, but in fact, for nature to produce a pregnancy, we need millions of sperm. It seems a bit redundant that a male, when he ejaculates, produces more than 15 million sperm each time. However, those 15 come off a production line that actually isn't very effective. A high percentage of those sperm will have abnormalities. They'll be like a a vehicle production line where some of them only have three wheels or they don't have any brakes. So the production line in the testicle while it produces lots and lots of sperm, a lot of them aren't normal and therefore they won't swim, they won't carry the right genetic material, they'll be misshapen and so fertilisation won't occur in the vast majority of them. 
Once they get in the right place, after ejaculation in the vagina, they've then got a journey. A journey that will take somewhere between 12 and 24 hours. Given the size of a sperm, which is virtually invisible to the naked eye, that journey from the cervix to the air to meet the egg in the fallopian tube is the equivalent of walking or running a marathon. So every sperm has to go through that to get to where it wants to get. And along the way, many of those sperm will die away. What we know is that for an egg to be fertilised, there needs to be a crowd of around 50,000 sperm that are swimming to actually get one to fertilise it. Why, Why we need those numbers, no one really knows. But that's the reality. So 50,000 sperm have to make a successful journey from the cervix to the fallopian tube. And that's not always the case. Particularly if sperm numbers at the beginning are relatively low or that the abnormality rate is abnormally high. So that's why we do a sperm test, is to assess that initial quality of the sperm that's being dumped in the vagina. The parameters that are used when in the laboratory are determined by the World Health Organization and they alter them every three or four years as more information becomes available. The things that are looked at in a basic sperm test are the sperm concentration, the number of sperm per mil of the sperm that's produced. That is said to be normal, i.e. it has a standard chance of producing a pregnancy when it reaches 15 million per mil. But men can have sperm counts up to over 100 million per mil. That's not abnormal, they're just lucky. The average sperm count is around 40 million. After looking at the total number of sperm present, we look at the percentage that are swimming, the progressive motility. And that should be around 15% of the sperm. That's not a very high number, but that's all you need if your sperm count is good. We then look at the shape of the sperm. We expect to see a sperm that looks a little bit like a tadpole in miniature. It has a head, a neck and a tail. Structural abnormalities, i.e. the shape of the sperm, can vary from head abnormalities, a little pinhead sometimes we get, a broken neck, a broken tail, two tails. There are all sorts of abnormalities that go along where the production line has made an error. Interestingly, we only need 4 or 5% of absolutely normal, tall, dark, handsome tadpoles to achieve a pregnancy if the numbers and swimmingness of the sperm is good. So up to 95% of sperm can be classified as abnormal. There are other more sophisticated tests that can be done which look at the chromosome breakdown in the head of the sperm, the chromosome material that's going to link with the mother's chromosomes to produce the genetics of the baby. And DNA fragmentation, as it's called, occurs in around about 10 to 15% of men. And those sperm, even if they've got normal numbers, 
normal motility and normal morphology will result in a less chance of fertilization and ongoing pregnancy. So testing for DNA fragmentation is done by some clinicians in all cases. In others, it's reserved for situations where we've had miscarriages or failed implantation. The other test that uh, I certainly believe in, and some of my colleagues do as well, is what we call a trial wash. Now, this is a, a test which is looking at the survival of the most progressive sperm. In a sense, it subdivides the good from the bad and the ugly. In layman's terms, basically we take the sperm, the raw sperm sample, and throw it in the end of a swimming pool. A concentration gradient is what it's called in the laboratory. And after an hour, we come back to the other end of the swimming pool and count the number of good swimmers, the ones that have swum from one end of the pool to the other in that hour. And that gives you some idea of what's going to happen inside the uterus as the sperm swim towards the egg. If that number is low, whatever the originating number or the originating motility is, if that number is low, spontaneous pregnancy is very unlikely. And those people should go to IVF or look at what the cause of that reduced trial wash is. So that's what we look at when we first look at a male. After we've done that, what we do is examine the male to see uh, if they have any abnormalities in the testes, if they've got a low sperm count. We usually do a ultrasound of the scrotum to look for varicose veins, for tumours, for the size of the testicles. Because we know that if a man's testicles are small, perhaps due to fibrosis or scarring, his sperm count is likely to be low and probably irrecoverable. Then we can do hormone tests. We do the pituitary hormone. So the pituitary gland is what drives the testicle to produce sperm and possibly, more importantly for some men, produce testosterone. Testosterone that will make them manly, give them muscles, give them a beard and make them boys. So we measure those hormone levels, which is a relatively straightforward test. And and if a man's got low sperm count, it can give us some idea of whether there's any optimism that it may improve. The investigations are complete. Once in men with very low sperm counts or no sperm, we would do more sophisticated genetic testing. And there are some lesions where on the Y chromosome, little patches of the gene have been deleted. And we know they're associated with very low sperm counts or no sperm. If we can diagnose those, the important part there is that we know they're not going to recover in terms of number. That's not going to change anything. There's a genetic problem. It also has implications for the children because if the father does produce a child through IVF or ICSI with their low sperm, that that child has a higher chance of carrying that abnormality into the next generation. It doesn't seem to have any other effect, and I have to say when I discuss this particular issue of of DNA damage, micro-deletions, they're called, with these men, it is rare that a couple will decide not to have IVF on the basis that it might be transmitted to the child. The most common comment I get when I discuss that is, well, if you can get us pregnant, you'll be able to get my son pregnant. So they're not 
particularly fussed by finding this problem, they're reassured that at least they know why. So that's virtually all the investigations that we do, and then based around those, we start to make diagnoses. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website, www.theivfjourney.com, and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to The IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au.